Okay, we are in chapter 10 of Till We Have Faces, and the last scene, Bardia and Orwell have just seen Psyche standing across this stream in this valley on the Grey Mountain. What page is it, Evan? 102. What I babbled between tears and laughter in the first wildness of my joy, the water still between us, I don't know. I was recalled by Bardia's voice. Careful, lady, it may be her wraith. It may, I, I, it is the bride of the god. It is a goddess. He was deadly white and bending down to throw earth on his forehead. You could not blame him. She was so bright-faced, as we say in Greek. But I felt no holy fear. What, I, to fear the very psyche whom I carried in my arms and taught to speak and to walk? She was tanned by sun and wind and clothed in rags, but laughing. Her eyes like two stars, her limbs smooth and rounded, and, but for the rags, no sign of beggary or hardship about her. Welcome, 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 she was saying. Oh, Maya, I've longed for this. It was my only longing. I knew you would come. Oh, how happy I am. And good Bardia, too. It was he that brought you. Of course, I might have guessed it. Come, Orwell, you must cross the stream. I'll show you where it's easiest. But Bardia, I can't bid you across. Dear Bardia, it's not... No, no, blessed Istra, said Bardia. And I thought he was very relieved. I am only a soldier. Then in a lower voice to me, Will you go, lady? This is a dre very dreadful place. Perhaps... Go, said I. I'd go if the river flowed with fire instead of water. Of course, said he, it is not with you as with us. You have God's blood in you. I'll stay here with the horse. We're out of the wind, and there's good grass for him here. I was already at the edge, on the edge of the river. A little further up, Orwell, Psyche was saying, here's the best ford. Go straight ahead off that big stone. Gently. Make your footing sure. No, not to your left. It's very deep in places. This way. Now, one step more. Reach out for my hand. I suppose the long, bedridden, and indoors time of my sickness had softened me. Anyhow, the coldness of that water shocked all the breath out of me, and the current was so strong that, but for Psyche's hand, I think it would have knocked me down and rolled me under. I even thought, momentarily, amid a thousand other things, how strong she grows. She'll be stronger woman than I ever was. She'll have that as well as her beauty. The next was all a confusion, trying to talk, to cry, to kiss, to get my breath back altogether. But she led me a few paces beyond the river and made me sit in the warm heather and sat beside me, our four hands joined in my lap, just as it had been that night in her prison. <coughs> Why, sister, she said merrily, you have found my threshold cold and steep. You are breathless, but I'll refresh you. She jumped up, went a little way off, and came back carrying something, the little cool dark berries of the mountain, in a green leaf. Eat, she said. Is it not food fit for the gods? Nothing sweeter, said I. And indeed I was both hungry and thirsty enough by now, for it was noon or later. But, oh, Psyche, tell me how... Wait, said she, after the banquet, the wine. Close beside us a little silvery trickle came out from among the stones, mossed, cushioned, soft. She held her two hands under it till they were filled and raised them to my lips. Have you ever tasted a nobler wine, she said, or in a fairer cup? 
It is indeed a good drink, said I, but the cup is better. It is the cup I love best in the world. Then it is yours, sister, she said it with such a pretty air of courtesy, like a queen and hostess giving gifts, that the tears came into my eyes again. It brought back so many of her plays in childhood. Thank you, child, said I. I hope it is mine indeed. But, Psyche, we must be serious, yes, and busy, too. How have you lived? How did you escape? And, oh, we mustn't let the joys of the moment put it out of our minds. What are we to do now? Do? Why be merry? What else? Why should our hearts not dance? They do dance. Do you not think? Why, I could forgive the gods themselves. I'll shortly be able to forgive Redival, perhaps. But how can it will be winter in a month or less? You can't, Psyche. How have you kept in, how have you kept alive till now? I thought, I thought, but to think of what I had thought overcame me. Hush, Maya, hush, said Psyche. Once more it was she who was comforting me. All those fears are over. All's well. I'll make it well for you too. I'll not rest till you're as happy as I. But you haven't yet even asked me my story. Weren't you surprised to find this fair dwelling place and me living here like this? Have you no wonder? Yes, Psyche, I am overwhelmed in it. But of course I want to hear your story, unless we should make our plans first. Solemn Orwell, said Psyche mockingly. You are always one for plans, and rightly too, Maya, with such a foolish child as me to bring up. And, well, you did it. With one light kiss she put all those days, all of my life that I cared for, behind us and began her story. I wasn't in my right mind when we left the palace. Before the two temple girls began painting and dressing me, they gave me a sweet, sticky stuff to drink, a drug, as I guessed, for soon after I had swallowed it, everything went dreamlike, and more and more so for a long time. And I think, sister, they must always give that to those whose blood is to be poured over Ungat, and that's why we see them die so patiently. And the painting on my face helped the dreaminess, too. It made my face stiff till it didn't seem to be my own face. I couldn't feel it was I who was being sacrificed. And then the music and incense and the tortures made it more so. I saw you, Orwell, at the top of the stairway, but I couldn't even lift a hand to wave to you, my arms as heavy as lead. And I thought it didn't matter much because you, too, would wake up presently and find it was all a dream. And in a sense it was, wasn't it? And you are nearly awake now. What? Still so grave? I must wake you more. You'd think the cold air would have given me my mind back when we came out of the great gates, but the drug must still have been coming to its full power. I had no fear, nor joy either. Sitting there in that, on that litter, up above the heads of all that crowd, was a strange enough thing anyway, and the horns and the rattles were going on all the time. I don't know whether the journey up the mountain was long or short, each bit of it was long. I noticed every pebble on the road. I looked long, long at every tree as we passed it. Yet the whole journey seemed to take hardly any time. Yet long enough for me to get some of my wits back, I began to know that something dreadful was being done to me. Then, for the first time, I wanted to speak. I tried to cry out to them that there was some mistake, that I was only poor Istra and it couldn't be me they meant to kill but nothing more than a kind of grunting or babbling came out of my mouth. Then a great bird-headed man, or a bird with a man's body. That would be the priest, said I. Yes, if he is still the priest when he puts on his mask, perhaps he becomes a god while he wears it. Anyway, it said, give her some more, and 
One of the younger priests got on someone else's shoulders and put the sweet, sticky cup to my lips again. I didn't want to take it, but you know, Maya, it all felt like the time you had the barber take the thorn out of my hand long ago. You remember, you holding me tight and telling me to be good and it'd all be over in a moment. Well, it was like that, so I felt sure I'd better do whatever I was told. The next thing I knew, really knew, was that I was off the litter and on the hot earth, and they were fastening me to the tree with iron round my waist. It was the sound of the iron that cleared the last of the drug out of my mind. And there was the king, shrieking and wailing and tearing his hair. And do you know, Maya, he actually looked at me, really looked, and it seemed to me that he was then seeing me for the first time. But all I wished was that he would stop it, and then he and all the rest would go away and leave me alone to cry. I wanted to cry now. My mind was getting clearer and clearer, and I was terribly afraid. I was trying to be like those girls in the Greek stories that the fox is always telling us about, and I knew if I could keep it up till they were gone, if only they would go quickly. Oh, Psyche, you say all's well now. Forget that terrible time. Go on quickly and tell me how you were saved. We have so much to talk about and arrange. There's no time. Orwell, there's all the time there is. Don't you want to hear my story? Of course I do. I want to hear every bit when we're safe, and where shall we ever be safe if we're not safe here? This is my home, Maya, and you won't understand the wonder and glory of my adventure unless you listen to the bad part. It wasn't very bad, you know. It's so bad I can hardly bear to listen to it. <coughs> ah, but wait. Well, at last they were gone, and there I was alone under the glare of the sky with the great baked parched mountain all around me, and not one noise to be heard. There wasn't a breath of wind even by the tree. You remember what the last day of the drought was like. I was already thirsty. The sticky drink had done that. Then I noticed for the first time that they had so bound me that I couldn't sit down. That was when my heart really failed me. I did cry then. Oh, Maya, how badly I wanted you and the fox. And all I could do was to pray, pray, pray to the gods that whatever was going to happen to me might happen soon. But nothing happened except that my tears made me thirstier. Then, a very long time after that, things began gathering around me. Things? Oh, nothing dreadful. Only the mountain cattle at first. Poor, lean things they were. I was sorry for them, for I thought they were as thirsty as I. And they came nearer and nearer in a great circle, but never very near, and mooed at me. And after that there came a beast that I had never seen before, but I think it was a lynx. It came right up close. My hands were free, and I wondered if I'd be able to beat it off, but I had no need to. After advancing and drawing back, I don't know how many times, I think it began fearing me as much as I feared it. It came and sniffed at my feet, and then it stood up with its forepaws on me and sniffed again. Then it went away. I was sorry it had gone. It was a kind of company. And do you know what I was thinking all this time? What? At first, I was trying to cheer myself with all that old dream of my gold and amber palace on the mountain, and the god, trying to believe it. But I couldn't believe it in it at all. I couldn't understand how I ever had. All that, all my old longings, were clean gone. I pressed her hands and said nothing, but inwardly I rejoiced. It might have been good, I don't know, to encourage that fancy the night before the offering, if it had supported her. Now I was glad she had got over it. It was a thing I could not like, unnatural and estranging. 
Perhaps this gladness of mine is one of the things the gods have against me. They never tell. The only thing that did me good, she continued, was quite different. It was hardly a thought and very hard to put into words. There was a lot of the fox's philosophy in it, things he says about gods or the divine nature, but mixed up with things the priest said, too, about the blood and the earth and how sacrifice makes the crops grow. I'm not explaining it well. It seemed to come from somewhere deep inside me, deeper than the parts part that sees pictures of gold and amber palaces, deeper than fears and tears. It was shapeless, but you could just hold on to it or just let it hold on to you. Then the change came. What change? I didn't know well what, what she was talking about, but I saw she must have her way and tell the story in her own fashion. Oh, the weather, of course. I couldn't see it tied the way I was, but I could feel it. I was suddenly cool. Then I knew the sky must be filling with clouds behind my back, over gloam, for all the colors of the mountain went out and my own shadow vanished. And then, that was the first sweet moment, a sigh of wind, west wind, came at my back. Then more and more wind. You could hear the smell and feel the rain drawing near. So then I knew quite well that the gods really are, and that I was bringing the rain. And then the wind was roaring. It was too soft a sound to call it a roar all around me, and rain. The tree kept some of it off of me. I was holding out my hands all the time and licking the rain off them. I was so thirsty. The wind got wilder and wilder. It seemed to be lifting me off the ground so that if it hadn't been for the iron around my waist, I'd have been blown right away up in the air. And then, at last, for a moment, I saw him. Saw whom? The west wind. Saw it. Not it. Him. The god of the wind. West wind himself. Were you awake, Psyche? Oh, it was no dream. One can't dream things like that because one's never seen things like that. He was in human shape, but you couldn't mistake him for a man. Oh, sister, you'd understand if you'd seen. How can I make you understand? You've seen lepers. Well, of course. And you know how healthy people look beside a leper? You mean healthier, ruddier than ever? Yes, now we, beside the gods, are like lepers beside us. Do you mean this god was so red? She laughed and clapped her hands. Oh, it's no use, she said. I see I've not given you the idea at all. Never mind. You shall see gods for yourself, Orwell. It must be so. I'll make it so. Somehow, there must be a way. Look, this may help you. When I saw a west wind, I was neither glad nor afraid at first. I felt ashamed. But what of, Psyche? They hadn't stripped you naked or anything. No, no, Maya. Ashamed of looking like a mortal. Ashamed of being mortal. But how could you help that? Don't you think the things people are most ashamed of are the things they can't help? I thought of my ugliness and said nothing. And he took me, said Psyche, in his beautiful arms, which seemed to burn me, though the burning didn't hurt, and pulled me right out of the iron girdle, and that didn't hurt either, and I don't know how he did it, and carried me up into the air, far up above the ground, and whirled me away, of course he was invisible again almost at once. I had seen him only as one sees a lightning flash, but that didn't matter. Now I knew it was he, not it. I wasn't in the least afraid of sailing along in the sky, even of turning head over heels in it. Psyche, are you sure this happened? You must have been dreaming. And if it was a dream, sister, how do you think I came here? It's more likely everything that happened to me before this was a dream. Why, Gloam and the king and old Bada seem to me very like dreams now, 
but you hinder my tail, Maya. So he carried me through the air and set me down softly, but at first I was all out of breath and too bewildered to see where I was, for West Wind is a merry, rough god. Sister, do you think young gods have to be taught how to handle us? A hasty touch from hands like theirs, and we'd fall to pieces. But when I came to myself, ah, can you think what a moment that was? I saw the house before me, I was lying on the threshold, and it wasn't, you see, just the gold and amber house I used to imagine. If it had been just that, I might have indeed thought I was dreaming. But I saw it wasn't. And not quite like any house in this land, nor quite like those Greek houses the fox describes to us. Something new, never conceived of. But there, you can see it for yourself, and I'll show you over every bit of it for in a moment. Why need I to try to show it in words? You could see it was a god's house at once. I don't mean a temple where a god is worshipped. A god's house where he lives. I would not for any wealth have gone into it, but I had to, Orwell, for there came a voice, sweet, oh, sweeter than any music, yet my hair rose at it too. And do you know, Orwell, what it said? It said, enter your house. Yes, it called it my house. Psyche, the bride of the god. I was ashamed again, ashamed of my mortality, and terribly afraid, but it would have been worse shame and worse fear to disobey. I went, cold, small, and shaking, up the steps and through the porch, and into the courtyard. There was no one to be seen, but then the voices came, all round me, bidding me welcome. What kind of voices? Like women's voices, at least as like women's voices as the wind god was like a man. And they said, Enter, lady, enter, mistress, do not be afraid. And there they were moving as the speakers moved, though I could see no one, and leading me by their movements. And so they brought me into a cool parlor with an arched roof, where there was a table set out with fruit and wine, such fruits as never, but you shall see. They said, Refresh yourself, lady, before the bath, after it comes the feast. Oh, Orwell, how could I tell you what it felt like? I knew they were all spirits, and I wanted to fall at their feet, but I daren't. If they made me mistress of that house, mistress I should have to be. Yet all the time I was afraid there might be some bitter mockery in it, and that at any time terrible laughter might break out, and, ah, said I with a long breath, how well I understood. Oh, but I was wrong, sister, utterly wrong. That's part of the mortal shame. They gave me fruit. They gave me wine. The voices gave you? The spirits gave them to me. I couldn't see their hands, yet, you know, it never looked as if the plates or the cup were moving of themselves. You could see that hands were doing it, and Orwell, her voice grew very low. When I took the cup, I, I felt the other hands touching my own. Again, that burning, though without pain. That was terrible. She blushed suddenly, and I wondered why laughed. It wouldn't be terrible now, she said, but then they had to tell me, to take, they had me to the bath. You shall see it. It is in the most delicate pillared court open to the sky, and the water is like crystal and smells as sweet as, as sweet as this whole valley. I was terribly shy when it came to taking off my clothes, but you said they were all she-spirits. Oh, my, you still don't understand. This shame has nothing to do with he or she. It's the being mortal. Being, how shall I say it, insufficient. Don't you think a dream would feel shy if it were seen walking about in the waking world? And then, she was speaking more and more quickly now, they dressed me again in the most beautiful things, and then came the banquet and the music, and then they had me to bed, and the night came, and then he. He? The bridegroom, the god himself. 
Don't look at me like that, sister. I'm your own true psyche still. Nothing will change that. Psyche, said I, leaping up. I can't bear this any longer. You've told me so many wonders. If this is all true, I've been wrong all my life. Everything has to be begun over again. Psyche, is it true? You're not playing a game with me. Show me, show me your palace. Of course I will, she said, rising. Let us go in, and don't be afraid of whatever you see or hear. Is it far, said I. She gave me a quick, astonished look. Far to where, she said. To the palace, to this God's house. You have seen a lost child in a crowd run up to a woman whom it takes for its mother, and how the woman turns round and shows the face of a stranger, and then the look in the child's eyes, silent a moment before it begins to cry. Psyche's face was like that, checked, blank, happiest assurance suddenly dashed all to pieces. Orwell, she said, beginning to tremble, what do you mean? I, too, became frightened, though I had yet no notion of the truth. Mean, said I, where is the palace? How far have we to go to reach it? She gave one loud cry, then with white face, staring hard into my eyes, she said, But this is it, Orwell. It is here. You are standing on the stairs of the great gate. Chapter 11 <clears throat> If anyone could have seen us at that moment, I believe he would have thought we were two enemies met for a battle to the death. I know we stood like that a few feet apart, every nerve taut, each with one eyes fixed on the other in a terrible watchfulness. And now we are coming to that part of my history on which my charge against the gods chiefly rests, and therefore I must try at any cost to write what is wholly true. Yet it is hard to know perfectly what I was thinking while those huge, silent moments went past. By remembering it too often, I have blurred the memory itself. I suppose my first thought might must have been, she's mad. Anyway, my whole heart leaped to shut the door against something monstrously amiss, not to be endured, and to keep it shut. Perhaps I was fighting not to be mad myself. But what I said when I got my breath, and I know my voice came out in a whisper, was simply, we must go away at once. This is a terrible place. Was I believing in her invisible palace? A Greek will laugh at the thought, but it's different in gloom. There the gods are too close to us. Up in the mountain, in the very heart of the mountain, where Bardia had been afraid, and even the priests don't go, anything was possible. No door could be kept shut. Yes, that was it. Not plain belief, but infinite misgiving. The whole world, psyche with it, slipping out of my hands. Whatever I meant, she misunderstood me horribly. So, she said, you do not see it after all. See what, I asked. A fool's question, I knew what. Why, this, this, said Psyche, the gates, the shining walls. For some reason, fury, my father's own fury, fell upon me when she said that. I found myself screaming. I'm sure I had not meant to scream. Stop it. Stop it at once. There's nothing there. Her face flushed for once, and for the moment only, she too was angry. Well, feel it, feel it. If you can't see, she cried, touch it, slap it, beat your head against it. Here. She made to grab my hands. I wrenched them free. Stop it, stop it, I tell you. There's no such thing. You're pretending. You're trying to make yourself believe it. But I was lying. How did I know whether she really saw invisible things or spoke in madness? Either way, something hateful and strange had begun. As if I could thrust it back by brute force, I fell upon Psyche. Before I knew what I was doing, I had her by the shoulders and was shaking her as one shakes a child. 
She was too big for that now, and far too strong, stronger than I ever dreamt she could be. And she flung my grip off in a moment. We fell apart, both breathing hard, now more like enemies than ever. All at once, a look came into her face that I had never seen there, sharp, suspicious. But you tasted the wine. Where do you think I got it from? Wine? What wine? What are you talking about? Orwell, the wine I gave you, and the cup. I gave you the cup. And where is it? Where have you hidden it? Oh, have done with it, child. I'm in no mood for nonsense. There was no wine. But I gave it to you. You drank it, and the fine honey cakes. You said, you gave me water cupped in your hands. But you praised the wine and the cup. You said, I praised your hands. You were playing a game. You know you were. And I fell in with it. She gaped, open-mouthed, yet beautiful even then. So that was all, she said shortly, slowly. You mean you saw no cup, tasted no wine? I wouldn't answer. She heard well enough what I said. Presently her throat moved as if she were swallowing something. Oh, the beauty of her throat. She pressed down the great storm of passion and her mood changed. It was now sober sadness mixed with pity. She struck her breast with her clenched fist as mourners do. Aye, aye, she mourned. So this is what he meant. You can't see it. You can't feel it. For you, it's not there at all. Oh, Maya, I am very sorry. I came almost to a full belief. She was shaking and stirring me in ways a dozen different ways. But I had not shaken her at all. She was as certain of her palace as of the plainest thing, as certain as the priest had been of Ungat when my father's dagger was between his ribs. I was as weak beside her as the fox beside the priest. This valley was indeed a dreadful place, full of the divine, sacred, no place for mortals. There might be a hundred things in it that I could not say. <clears throat> Can a Greek understand the horror of that thought? Years after, I dreamed again and again that I was in some well-known place, most often the pillar room, and everything I saw was different from what I touched. I could lay my hand on the table <clears throat> and feel warm hair instead of smooth wood, and the corner of the table would shoot out a hot, wet tongue and lick me. And I knew by the mere taste of them that all those dreams came from that moment when I believed I was looking at Psyche's palace and did not see it. For the horror was the same, a sickening discord, a rasping together of two worlds like two bits of broken bone. But in the reality, not in the dreams, with the horror came the inconsolable grief, for the world had broken in pieces and Psyche and I were not in the same peace. Seas, mountains, madness, death itself could not have removed her from me to such a hopeless distance as this. Gods, and again gods, always gods, they had stolen her. They would leave us nothing. A thought pierced up through the crust of my mind like a crocus coming up in the early year. Was she not worthy of the gods? Ought they not to have her? But instantly great choking, blinding waves of sorrow swept it away, and, oh, I cried, it's not right. Not right, O oh, Psyche, come back. Where are you? Come back, come back. She had me in her arms at once. Maya, sister, she said. I am here, Maya, don't. I can't bear it, I'll... Yes, oh, my own child, I do feel you. I hold you, but oh, it's only like holding you in a dream. You are leagues away and die. She led me a few places further and made me sit down on a mossy bank and sat beside me. With words and touch, she comforted me all she could. And as, in the center of a storm or even of a battle, I have known sudden stillness for a moment, so now, for a little, I let her comfort me.
Not that I took any heed of what she was saying. It was her voice and her love in her voice that counted. Her voice was very deep for a woman's. Sometimes even now the way she used to say this or that word comes back to me as warm and real as if she were beside me in a room. The softness of it, the richness as of corn grown from deep soil. What was she saying? And perhaps, Maya, you too will learn how to see. I will beg and implore him to make you able. He will understand. He warned me when I asked you for this meeting that it might not turn out as I had hoped. I never thought, I'm only simple psyche, as he calls me, never thought he meant you wouldn't even see it. So he must have known. He'll tell us. He. I had forgotten this him, or, if not forgotten, left him out of account ever since she first told me we were standing at his palace gates, and now she was saying he every moment, no other name but he, the way young wives talk. Something began to grow colder and harder inside me, and this also is like what I've known in wars, when that which was only they or the enemy all at once becomes the man two feet away who means to kill you. Who are you talking of, I asked, but I meant, why do you talk of him to me? What have I to do with him? But Maya, she said, I told you all my story, my God, of course, my lover, my husband, the master of my house. Oh, I can't bear it, said I, leaping up. Those last words of hers, spoken softly and with trembling, set me on fire. I could feel my rage coming back. Then, like a great light, a hope of deliverance, it came to me. I asked myself why I'd forgotten and how long I'd forgotten that first notion of her being mad. Madness, of course. The whole thing must be madness. It had been nearly as mad as she to think otherwise. At the very name madness, the air of that valley seemed more breathable. It seemed empty of the little of its holiness and horror. Have done with it, Psyche, I said sharply. Where is this god? Where the palace is? Nowhere in your fancy? Where is he? Show him to be. What is he like? She looked a little aside and spoke lower than ever, but very clear, and as if all that had passed between us were of no account beside the gravity of what she was now saying. Oh, Orwell, she said, not even I have seen him yet. He comes to me only in the holy darkness. He says I mustn't, not yet, see his face or know his name. I am forbidden to bring any light into his, our, chamber. Then she looked up, and as our eyes met for a moment, I saw in hers unspeakable joy. There is no such thing, I said loud and stern. Never say these things again. Get up. It's time. Orwell, she said now at her queenliest. I have never told you a lie in my life. I tried to soften my manner, yet the words came out cold and stern. No, you don't mean to lie. You're not in your right mind, Psyche. I, you have imagined things. It's the terror and the loneliness and that drug they gave you. We'll cure you. Orwell, said she. What? If it's all my fancy, how do you think I've lived these many days? Do I look as if I'd fed on berries and slept under the sky? Are my arms wasted or my cheeks fallen in? I would, I believe, have lied to her myself and said they were, but it was impossible. From the top of her head to her naked feet, she was bathed in life and beauty and well-being. It was as if they flowed over her or from her. It was no wonder Bardia had worshipped her as a goddess. The very rag served only to show more of her beauty. All the honey sweetness, all the rose red and the ivory and the warm breathing perfection of her. 
She even seemed, but that's impossible, I thought, taller than before. And as my lie died unspoken, she looked at me with something like mockery in her face. Her mocking looks had always been some of her loveliest. You see, she said, it's all true. And that, no, listen, Maya, that is why all will come right. We'll make, he will make you able to see. And then, I don't want it, I cried, putting my face close to hers, threatening all, her almost, till she drew back before my fierceness. I don't want it. I hate it. Hate it. Hate it. Hate it. Do you understand? But Orwell, why? Why do you, what do you hate? Oh, the whole, what can I call it? You know very well. Or you used to. This, this, and then something she had said about him, hardly noticed till now, began to work horribly in my mind. This thing that comes to you in the darkness, and you're forbidden to see it. Holy darkness, you call it. What sort of thing? Faw. It's like living in the house of Ungit. Everything's dark about the gods. I think I could smell the very... The steadiness of her gaze, the beauty of her, so full of pity, yet in ways so pitiless, made me dumb for a moment. Then my tears broke out again. Oh, Psyche, I sobbed. You're so far away. Do you even hear me? I can't reach you. Oh, Psyche, Psyche, you loved me once. Come back. What have we to do with gods and wonders and all these cruel dark things? We're women, aren't we? Mortals, come back to the real world. Leave all that alone. Come back where we were happy. But Orwell, think, how can I go back? This is my home. I am a wife. Wife of what? I said, shuddering. If only you knew him, she said. You like it, oh, Psyche. She would not answer me. Her face flushed. Her face and her whole body were the answer. Oh, you ought to have been one of Ungit's girls, I said savagely. You ought to have lived in there in the dark, all blood and incense and muttering and the reek of burning fat. To like it, living among things you can't see, dark and holy and horrible. Is it nothing to you at all that you are leaving me, going into all that, turning your back on all our love? No, no, Maya, I can't go back to you. How could I? You must come to me. Oh, it's madness, said I. Was it madness or not? Which was true? Which could be worse? Would be worse? I was at that very moment when, if they meant us well, the gods would speak. Mark what they did instead. It began to rain. It was only a light rain, but it changed everything for me. Here, child, said I, come under my cloak, your poor rags. Quick, you'll be wet through. She gazed at me wonderingly. How should I get wet, Maya, she said, when we're sitting indoors with a roof over us? And rags, oh, but I forgot, you can't see my robes either. The rain shone on her cheeks as she spoke. If that wise Greek who is to read this book doubts that this turned my mind right round, let him ask his mother or wife. The moment I saw her, my child whom I had cared for all her life, sitting there in the rain as if it meant no more to her than it does to cattle, the notion that her palace and her god could be anything but madness was at once unbelievable. All those wilder misgivings, all the fluttering to and fro between two opinions, was, for that time, quite over. I saw in a flash that I must choose one opinion or the other, and in the same flash I knew which I had chosen. Psyche, said I, and my voice had changed. This is sheer raving. You can't stay here. Winter will be on us soon. It'll kill you. I cannot leave my home, Maya. Home. This is, there is no home here. Get up. Here, under my cloak. She shook her head a little wearily. It's no use, Maya, she said. I see it, and you don't. 
Who's the judge between us? I'll call Bardia. I'm not allowed to let him in, and he wouldn't come. That, I knew, was true. Get up, girl, I said. Do you hear me? Do as you're told. Psyche, you never disobeyed me before. He, she looked up, wetter every moment, and said, very tender in a voice, but hard as stone in her determination, Dear Maya, I am a wife now. It's no longer you that I must obey. I learned then how one can hate those one loves. My fingers were round her wrist in an instant, my other hand on her upper arm. We were struggling. You shall come, I panted. We'll force you away, hide you somewhere. Bardia has a wife, I believe. Lock you up, his house. Bring you to your senses. It was useless. She was far stronger than I. Of course, I thought. They say mad people have double strength. We left marks on one another's skin. There was a thick, tangled sort of wrestling. Then we were parted again. She staring with reproach and wonder. I, weeping, as I had wept at her prison door, utterly broken with shame and despair. The rain had stopped. It had, I suppose, done all the gods wanted. And now there was nothing at all left that I could do. Psyche, as always, recovered herself first. She laid her hand. There was a smear of blood on it. Was it possible that I could have scratched her across my shoulder? Dear Maya, she said, you have very seldom been angry with me in all the years I can remember. Do not begin now. Look, the shadows have already crept nearly all the way across the courtyard. I had hoped that before this we should have feasted together and been married. But there, you would have only tasted berries and cold water. Bread and onions with Bardia will be more comfort to you. But I must send you away before the sun sets. I promised that I would. Are you sending me away forever, Psyche, and with nothing? Nothing, Orwell, but a bidding to come again as soon as you can. I'll work for you here. There must be some way. And then, oh, Maya, then we shall meet here again with no cloud between us. And But now you must go. What could I do but obey her? In body, she was stronger than I. Her mind I could not reach. She was already leading me back to the river, back through the desolate valley she called her palace. The valley looked very hide looked hideous to me now. There was a chill in the air. Sunset flamed up behind the black mass of the saddle. She clung to me at the very edge of the water. You will come back soon, she said. If I can, Psyche, you know how it is in our house. I think, said she, the king will not be much hindrance to you in the next few days. Now, there's no more time. Kiss me again. Dear Maya, now lean on my hand. Feel for the flat stone with your foot. Again, I endured the sword cut of the icy water. From this side, I looked back. Psyche, Psyche, I broke out. There's still time. Come with me. Anywhere. I'll smuggle you out of Glom. We'll go for beggar women all over the world. Or you can go to Bardia's house. Anywhere. Anything you like. She shook her head. <coughs> How could I? She said. I am not my own. You forget, sister, that I am a wife. Yet always yours, too. Oh, if you knew, you'd be happy. Orwell, don't look so sad. All will be well. All will be better than you can dream of. Come again soon. Farewell for a little. She went away from me into her terrible valley and out of sight finally among the trees. It was already deep twilight on my side of the river, close in under the shadow of the saddle. Barty, I cried. Barty, where are you? Chapter 12. Bardia, a gray shape in the twilight, came towards me. You have left the blessed, she, he said. Yes, said I. I could not talk to him about it, I thought. 
then we must speak of how to spend our night. We'd never find a way for the horse up to the saddle now, and if we did, we'd have to go down again beyond the tree into the other valley. We couldn't sleep on the saddle itself, too much wind. It'll be cold enough here where we're sheltered in an hour or so. I fear we must lie here. Not where a man chooses, too near the gods. What does it matter, said I. It will do as well as anywhere else. Then come with me, lady. I've gathered a few sticks. I followed him, and in that silence there was nothing now but the chattering of the stream, and it seemed louder than ever. We could hear, long before we came to the horse, the sound of the grass torn up by his teeth. A man and a soldier is a wonderful creature. Bardia had chosen a place where the bank was steepest, and two rocks came close together and made the next best thing to a cave. The stacks were all laid and the fire alight, though still sputtering from the late rain. And he brought out of the saddlebags things better than bread and onions, even a flask of wine. I was still a girl, which in many matters is the same thing as a fool. And it seemed to me shameful that in all my sorrow and care that I was so eager for the food when it came. I've never tasted better. And that meal in the firelight, which had made all the rest of the world a mere darkness as soon as it blazed up, seemed to be very sweet and homelike, mortal food and warmth for mortal limbs and bellies, no need for a space to think of gods and riddles and wonders. When we had ended, Bardia said somewhat shamefacedly, Lady, you're not used to lying in the open, and you might be cruelly chilled before day, so I'll make so free, for I'm no more to you, lady, than one of your do father's big dogs, as to say we'd best lie close, back to back, the way men do in the wars, and both cloaks over us. I said yes to that, and indeed no woman in the world has so little reason as I to be chary in such matters. Yet it surprised me that he should have said it, for I did not yet know, know that, if you're ugly enough, all men, unless they hate you deeply, will soon give up thinking of you as a woman at all. Marty arrested as soldiers do, dead asleep in two breaths, but ready, I've seen him tested since, to be wide awake in one, if need be. I think I never slept at all. First there was the hardness and slope of the ground, and after that the cold. And besides these, fast and whirling thoughts, wakeful as a madman's, about Psyche and my hard riddle, and also of another thing. At last the cold grew so bitter that I slipped from under the cloak. Its outer side was wet with dew by now, and began walking to and fro. And now let that wise Greek whom I took look to as my reader, and the judge of my cause, mark well what followed. It was already twilight, and there was much mist in the valley, the pools of the river as I went down to it to drink, for I was thirsty as well as cold, seemed to be dark holes in the grayness. And I got my drink, ice cold, and I thought it steadied my mind. But would a river flowing in the God's secret valley do that, or the clean contrary? This is another of the things to be guessed. For when I lifted my head and looked once more into the mist across the water, I saw that which brought my heart into my throat. There stood the palace, gray, as all things were gray in that hour and place, but solid and motionless, wall within wall, pillar and arch and architrave, acres of it, labyrinthine beauty. As she had said, it was like no house ever seen in our land or age. Pinnacles and buttresses leaped up. No memories of mine, you would think, could help me to imagine them. Unbelievably tall and slender, pointed and prickly, as if stone were shooting out into branch and flower. No light showed from any window. 
It was a house asleep. And somewhere within it, sleep also, asleep also, someone or something, how holy or horrible or beautiful or strange, with Psyche in its arms. And I, what had I done and said? What would it do to me for my blasphemies and unbelievings? I never doubted that I must now cross the river or try to cross it, even if it should drown me. I must lie on the steps of the great gate of that house and make my petition. I must ask forgiveness of Psyche as well as of the god. I had dared to scold her, dared, what was worse, to try to comfort her as a child, but all the time she was far above me herself, now hardly mortal if what I saw was real. I was in great fear. Perhaps it was not real. I looked and looked to see if it would not fade or change. Then as I rose, for all this time, I was still kneeling where I had drunk. Almost before I stood on my feet, the whole thing was vanished. There was a tiny space of time in which I thought I could see how some swirlings of the mist had looked for the moment, like towers and walls, but very soon, no likeness at all. I was staring simply into fog, and my eyes smarting with it. And now, you who read, give judgment. That moment when I either saw or thought I saw the house, does it tell against the gods or against me? Would they, if they answered, make it part of their defense, say it was a sign, a hint, beckoning me to answer the riddle one way rather than the other? I'll not grant them that. What is the use of a sign which is itself only another riddle? It might, I'll allow so much, it might have been a true seeing. The cloud over my mortal eyes may have been lifted for a moment. It might not. What would be easier than for one distraught and not, maybe, so fully wake, waking as she seemed, gazing at a mist in a half-light to fancy what had filled her thoughts for so many hours? What easier than, even then, for the gods themselves to send the whole furley for a mockery? Either way, there's a divine mockery in it. They set the riddle and then allow a seeming that can't be tested and can only quicken and thicken the tormenting whirlpool of your guesswork. If they had an honest intention to guide us, why is their guidance not plain? Psyche could speak plain when she was three. Do you tell me the gods have not yet come so far? When I came back to Bardia, he was just awake. I did not tell him what I had seen. Until I wrote it in this book, I have never told it to anyone. Our journey down was comfortless, for there was no sun, and the wind was always in our faces, with scudding showers at times. I, sitting behind Bardia, got less of it than he. We halted somewhere about noon under the lee of a small wood to eat what was left of our food. Of course, my riddle had been working in my mind all morning, and it was there, out of the wind for a little, and somewhat warmer. Was Psyche warm? the worst weather soon to come, that I made up my mind to tell him the whole story, always accepting that moment when I looked into the mist. I knew he was an honest man, and secret, and in his own way, wise. He listened to it all very diligently, but said nothing when I had ended. I had to draw his answer out of him. How do you read it all, Bardia? Lady, says he, it is not my way to say more than I can help of gods and divine matters. I am not impious. I wouldn't eat with my left hand, or lie with my wife when the moon's full, or slit open a pigeon to clean it with an iron knife, or do anything else that's unchancy and profane, even if the king himself were to bid me. And as for sacrifices, I've always done all that can be expected of a man on my pay. But for anything more, 
I think the less Bardia meddles with the gods, the less they meddle with Bardia. But I was determined to have his counsel. Bardia, I said, do you think my sister is mad? Look, lady, he answered. There, at your first word, you say what's better unsaid. Mad. The blessed. Mad. Moreover, we've seen her, and anyone could tell she was in her right mind. Then you think there really was a palace in the valley, though I couldn't see it? <coughs> I don't well know what's really when it comes to the houses of gods. And what of this lover that comes to her in the dark? I say nothing about him. Oh, Bardia, and among the spears men say you're the bravest, and you afraid even to whisper your thought to me. I'm in desperate need of counsel. Counsel about what, lady? What is there to do? How do you read this riddle? Does anyone really come to her? She says so, lady. Who am I to give the blessed one the lie? Who is he? She knows best. She knows nothing. She confesses she has never seen him. Bardia, what kind of lover must this be who forbids his bride to see his face? Bardia was silent. He had a pebble between his thumb and forefinger and was drawing little scratches in the earth. Well, said I, there doesn't seem to be much of a riddle about it, he said at last. Then what's your answer? I should say, speaking as a mortal man, and likely enough the gods know better, I should say it was one whose face and form would give her little pleasure if she saw them. Some frightful thing? They called her the bride of the brute, lady, but it's time we were riding again. We're not much better than halfway home. He got up as he spoke. His thought was not new to me. It was only the most horrible of the guesses which had been jostling and wrangling in my head, but the shock of hearing it from his lips lay in this, that I knew he had no doubt of it. I had come to know Bardia very well by now, and I could see, clearly see that all my difficulty in drawing out his answer came from his fear to say the thing, and not from any uncertainty. As he had said, my riddle was no riddle to him. It was as though all the people of Gloam had spoken to me through him. As he thought so, doubtless every prudent, God-fearing man of our nation and our time would think too. My other guesses would not even come into their minds. Here was the plain answer, clear as noonday. Why seek further? The god and the shadow brute were all one. She had been given to it. We had got our rain and water, and, as seemed likely, peace with fars. The gods, for their share, had had her away to their secret places where something so foul it would not show itself, some holy and sickening thing, ghostly or demon-like or bestial, or all three, there's no telling with gods, enjoyed her at its will. I was so dashed that, as we continued our journey, nothing in me even fought against this answer of Bardia's. I felt as, I suppose, a tortured prisoner feels when they dash water in his face to rouse him from his faint, and the truth, worse than all of his fantasies, comes clear and hard and unmistakable again around him. It now seemed to me that all my other guesses had been only self-pleasing dreams spun out of my wishes, but now I was awake. There never had been any riddle. The worst was the truth. The truth was as plain as the nose on a man's face. The only terror, only terror would have blinded me to it so long. My hand stole to the sword hilt under my cloak. Before my sickness I had sworn that, if there were no other way, I would have killed Psyche rather than leave her to the heat or hunger of a monster. Now again I made a deep resolve. I was half frightened when I perceived what I was resolving. 
So it might come even to that, my heart said, even to killing her. Bardia had already taught me the straight thrust and where to strike. Then my tenderness came over me again, and I cried never more bitterly, till I could not tell whether it was tears or the rain that most drenched my veil. It was settling down to steadier rain as the day went on, and in that tenderness I even asked myself why I should save her from the brute, or warn her against the brute, or meddle with the matter at all. She is happy, said my heart. Whether it is madness, or a god, or a monster, or whatever it is, she is happy. I have seen that for my, yourself. You have seen that for yourself. She's ten times happier there on the mountain than you could ever make her. Leave her alone. Don't spoil it. Don't mar what you've learned you can't make. We were down in the foothills now, almost, if one could have seen through the rain, in sight of the house of Ungut. My heart did not conquer me. I perceived now that there is a love deeper than theirs who seek only the happiness of their beloved. Would a father see his daughter happy as a whore? Would a woman see her lover happy as a coward? My hand went back to the sword. She shall not, I thought. Come what might, she should not. However things might go, whatever the price, by her death or mine, by a, th or a thousand deaths, by fronting the gods beard to beard, as the soldiers say, Psyche should not, least of all contentedly, make sport for a demon. We are king's daughters still, I said. I had hardly said it when I had a good cause to remember, in a different fashion, that I was a king's daughter, and what kings? For now we were fording the Shenet again, and Bardia, whose mind was ever on next things, was saying that when we had passed the city, before we reached the palace, I had best slip off the horse and go up that little lane where Redival first saw Psyche being worshipped, and so through the gardens and into the women's quarters by the back way. For it was easy to guess how my father would take it if he found that I, supposed too sick to work for him in the pillar room, had journeyed to the holy tree. Chapter 13 It was nearly dark in the palace, and as I came to my chamber door, a voice said in Greek, Well, it was the fox, who had been squatting there, as my women told me, like a cat in a mouse hole. Alive, grandfather, said I, and kissed him. Then, come back as soon as you can. I'm wet as a fish and must wash and change and eat. I'll tell you all when you come. When I was reclothed and finishing my supper, his knock came at the door. I made him come and sit with me at table and poured him drink. There was no one with us but little Pooby, my dark-skinned maid, who was faithful and loving and knew no Greek. You said alive, the fox began, raising his cup. See, I make a libation to Zeus the Savior. He did it Greek fashion with a clever twist of the cup that lets fall just one drop. Yes, Grandfather, alive and well, and says she's happy. I feel as if my heart would crack for joy, child, he said. You tell me things almost beyond belief. You've had the sweet, Grandfather. There's sour to follow. Let me hear it. All is to be born. Then I told him the whole story, always accepting that one glimpse in the fog. It was dreadful to me to see the light die out of his face as I went on, and to feel that I was darkening it. And I asked myself, if you can hardly bear to do this, how will you bear to wipe out Psyche's happiness? Alas, alas, poor Psyche, said the fox, our little child, and how she must have suffered. Hellebore is the right medicine, with rest and peace and loving care. Oh, we'll bring her into frame again, I don't doubt it, if we could nurse her well. 
but how are we to give her all and any of the things she needs? My wits are dry, daughter. We must think, though, contrive. I wish I were Odysseus, I or Hermes. You think that she's mad, for certain? He darted a quick glance at me. My daughter, what then have you been thinking? You'll call it folly, I suppose, but you weren't with her grandfather. She talked so calmly. There was nothing disordered in her speech. She could laugh merrily. Her glance wasn't wild. If I'd had my eyes shut, I would have believed her palace was as real as this. But, your eyes being open, you saw no such thing. You don't think, but I'd possibly, not in the mere hundredth chance, there might be things that are real, though we can't see them. Certainly I do. Such things as justice, equality, the soul, or musical notes. Oh, grandfather, I don't mean things like that. If there are souls, could there not be soul houses? He ran his hands through his hair with an old familiar gesture of a teacher's dismay. Child, he said, you make me believe that after all these years you have never even begun to understand what the word soul means. I know well enough what you mean by it, grandfather, but do you, even you, know all? Are there no things, I mean things, but what we see? Plenty things behind our backs, things too far away, and all things, if it's dark enough. He leaned forward and put his hand on mine. I begin to think, daughter, that if I can get that hellebore, yours had better be the first dose, he said. I had had half a thought at the outset of telling him about the furley, my glimpse of the palace. But I couldn't bring myself to it. He was the worst hearer in the world for such a story. Already he was making me ashamed of half the things I had been thinking, and now a more cheering thought came to me. Then perhaps, said I, this lover who comes to her in darkness is also part of the madness. I wish I could believe it, said the fox. Why not, grandfather? You say she's plump and rosy, not starveling? Never better. Then who's fed her all this time? I was silenced. And who took her out of the irons? I never thought of this question at all. Grandfather, I said, what is in your mind? You, you of all men, are not hinting that it is the god. You'd laugh at me if I said so. I'd be more likely to weep. No, child, child, child. When shall I have washed the nurse and the granddam and the priest and the soothsayer out of your soul? Do you think the divine nature, why, it's profane, ridiculous. You might as well say the universe itched, or the nature of things sometimes tippled in the wine cellar. I haven't said it was a god, grandfather, said I. I'm asking who you think it was. A man, a man, of course, said the fox, beating his hands on the table. What, are you still a child? Didn't you know there were men on the mountain? Men, I gasped. Yes, vagabonds, broken men, outlaws, thieves. Where are your wits? Indignation came burning into my cheeks, and I sprang up for any daughter of our house to mix, even in lawful marriage, with those that have not, at least by one grandparent, divine descent, is an utter abomination. The fox's thought was unendurable. What are you saying? I asked him. Psyche would die on sharp stakes sooner than peace, daughter, said the fox. Psyche doesn't know. As I read it, some robber or runaway has found the poor child, half-crazed with terror and loneliness, and with thirst too, likely enough, and got her out of her irons, and if she were not in her right mind, what would she most probably babble of in her ravings? Her gold and amber house on the mountain, of course. She has had that fantasy from her childhood. The fellow would fall in with it. He'd be the god's messenger. Why, that's where her god of the west wind comes from. It would be the man himself. He'd take her to the Savalli. 
he'd whisper to her that the god, the bridegroom, would come to her that night, and after dark, he'd come back. But the palace, her old fantasy, raised up by her madness and taken by her for reality, and whatever she tells the rascal about her fine house, he echoes it all, perhaps adds some more of his own. <coughs> and so the delusion is built up stronger and stronger. For the second time that day, I was utterly aghast. The fox's explanation seemed too plain and evident to allow me any hope of doubt. Why Bardia, while Bardia was speaking, his had seemed the same. It looks, grandfather, said I dully, as if you had read the riddle, riddle right. It needed no Oedipus. Oh, the real riddle still to guess. What must we do? Oh, I'm barren. Barren. I think your father has addled my brains with beating me about the ears. There must be some way, yet we've so little time. And so little freedom, I can't pretend to be on my sickbed much longer. And once the king knows I'm whole, how shall I ever get to the mountain again? Oh, for that. But I'd forgotten. There's been news today. The lions have been seen again. What? I cried in terror. On the mountain? No, no. Not so bad as that. Indeed, rather good than bad. Somewhere down south and west of Ringo. The king will have a great lion hunt. The lion's back, so Ungut has played us false after all. Perhaps he'll sacrifice Redival this time. It's, is the king in a great rage? Rage? No. Why, you'd think that the loss of a herdsman and what he values far more, some of the best dogs, and I don't know how many bullets, was the best news he'd ever heard. I never saw him in better spirits. There's nothing in his mouth all day but dogs and beaters and weather and such rummage and bustle. Messages to this lord and that lord, deep talks with the huntsman, inspecting of kennels, shoeing the horses, beer flowing like water. Even I have been slapped on the back in pure good fellowship till my ribs ache with it. But what concerns us is that he'll be out of the, of, at the hunting for the next two days at least. With luck, it might be five or six. Then that's the time we have to work in. No more than that. He goes at daybreak tomorrow, and anyway, we'd have little longer. She'll die if winter catches her on the mountain, living without a roof, and she'll be with child, no doubt, before we've time to look about us. It was as if I'd been hit about the heart. Leprosy and scabs on the man, I gasped. Curse him, curse him. Psyche to carry a beggar's brat. We'll have him impaled if ever we catch him. He shall die for days. Oh, I could tear his body with my bare teeth. You darken our counsels and your own soul with these passions, said the fox. If there were anywhere, she could lie hidden. If we could get her. I had thought, said I, we could hide her in Bardia's house. Bardia? He'll never take one who's been sacrificed into his house. He's afraid of his own shadow where gods and old wives' tales are concerned. He's a fool. That he is not, said I sharply enough, for the fox often nettled me with his contempt for very brave and honest people if they had no tincture of his Greek wisdom. And if Bardia would, fox added, that wife of his wouldn't let him, and everyone knows that Bardia is tied to his wife's apron strings. Bardia? Such a man, I couldn't have believed it. Pa, he's as amorous as Alcibiades. Why, the fellow married her undowered, for her beauty, if you please. The whole town knows of it, and she rules him like her slave. She must be a very vile woman, grandfather. What does it matter to us whether she is or no? But you needn't think to find refuge for our darling in that house. I'll go further, daughter. There's nothing for it but to send her right out of Gloam. If anyone in Gloam knew she had not died, they would seek her out and sacrifice her again. If we could get her to her mother's family... 
but I see no way of doing it. Oh, Zeus, 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 if I had ten hoplites and a sane man to command them. <coughs> I can't see, said I, even how to get her to leave the mountain. She was obstinate, grandfather. She obeys me no more. I think we must use force. And we have no force. I am a slave, and you are a woman. I, we can't lead a dozen spears up the mountain, and if we could, the secret would never be kept. After that, we sat silent for a long time, the fire flickering, Pooby, sitting cross-legged by the hearth, feeding the logs into it and playing a strange game of her own peoples with beads. She once tried to teach it to me, but I could never learn. The fox made as if to speak a dozen times, but always checked himself. He was quick to devise plans, but no less quick to see the faults in them. At last I said, It all comes to this, Grandfather. I must go back to Psyche. I must overrule her somehow. Once she is on our side, once she knows her shame and danger, then the three of us must devise as best we can. It may be that she and I must go out into the wide world together, wander like Oedipus. And I with you, said the fox. You once bade me run away. This time I'll do it. One thing's certain, said I. She shall not be left to the felon who abused her. I will choose any way, any way rather than that. It rests on me. Her mother's dead. What mother but me has she ever known? Her father's nothing, nothing for a father, and nothing for a king either. The honor of our house, the very being of Psyche, why, only I am left to care for them. She shall not be left. I'll, I'll, what child? You're pale. Are you fainting? If there's no other way, I will kill her. Bye-bye, said the fox so loud that Pooby stopped her game and stared at him. Daughter, daughter, you are transported beyond reason, all reason in nature. You do not know what it is. Do you not know what it is? There is one part love in your heart, and five parts anger, and seven parts pride. The gods know I love Psyche too, and you know it, though you know I love her as well as you do. It's a bitter grief that our child, our very Artemis and Aphrodite all in one, should live as a beggar's life and lie in a beggar's arms. Yet even this, it is not to be named beside such detested impieties as you speak of. Why, look at it squarely, as reason and nature would have made it, as not as passion would paint it. To be poor and in hardship, to be a poor man's wife. <coughs> wife, you mean his troll, his drab, his whore, his slut. Nature knows nothing of these names. What you call marriage is by law and custom, not nature. Nature's marriage is but the union of the man who persuades and the woman who consents. And so, the man who persuades or more likely forces or deceives, being some murderer, alien, traitor, runaway, slave, or other filth. Filth? Perhaps I do not see it as you do. I am an alien and a slave myself, and ready to be a runaway, to risk the flogging and impaling for your love and hers. You are ten times my father, said I, raising his hand to my lips. I meant no such thing, but, Grandfather, there are matters you don't understand. Psyche said so herself. Sweet Psyche, he said, I have often told her so. I am glad she has mastered the lesson. She was ever a good pupil. You don't believe in the divine blood of our house, said I. Oh, yes, of all houses, all men are of divine blood. For there is God, is the God in every man. We are all one. Even the man who has taken Psyche, I have called him a rascal and villain. Too likely he is. But it may not be. A good man might be an outlaw or a runaway. I was silent. All this meant nothing to me. Daughter, said the fox suddenly, I think no woman, at least no woman who loved you, would have done it. Sleep comes early to old men. I can hardly keep my eyes open. Let me go. Perhaps we shall see more clearly in the morning. 
What could I do but send him away? This is where men, even the trustiest, fail us. Their heart is never so wholly given to any matter that some trifle of a meal, or a drink, or a sleep, or a joke, or a girl may come in between them and it, and then, even if you're a queen, you'll get no more good out of them till they've had their way. In those days, I had not yet understood this. Great desolation came over me. Everyone goes from me, I said. None of them cares for Psyche. She lives at the very outskirts of their thoughts. She is less to them, far less, than Pooby is to me. They think of her a little, and then get tired and go and do something else. The fox to his sleep, Bardia to his doll, or scold of a wife. You were alone, Orwell. Whatever is to be done, you must devise and do it. No help will come. The gods, all gods and mortals, have drawn away from you. You must guess the riddle. Not a word will come to you until you have guessed wrong, and they all come crowding back to accuse and mock and punish you for it. I sent Pooby to bed. Then I did a thing which I think few have done. I spoke to the gods myself, alone, in such words as came to be, not in a temple or without a sacrifice. I stretched my face, self face downward on the floor and called upon them with my whole heart. I took back every word I had said against them. I promised anything they might ask of me, if only they would send me a sign. They gave me none. When I began, there was red fire lighted the room and rain on the roof, and when I rose up again, the fire had sunk a little lower and the rain drummed on as before. Now, when I knew that I was utterly left to myself, I said, I must do it, whatever I do, tomorrow. I must then rest tonight. I lay down on the bed. I was in that state when the body is so tired that sleep comes soon, but the mind is in such anguish that it will wake you the moment the body sated. It woke me a few hours past midnight, with no least possibility of further sleep in me. The fire was out. The rain had stopped. I went to my window and, looking out into the gusty blackness, twisting my hair and my fists with my knuckles against my temples, and thought. My mind was much clearer. I now saw that I had, strangely, taken both Bardia's explanation and the fox's, each while it lasted, for certain truth. Yet one must be false, and I could not find out which, for each was well-rooted in its own soil. If the things believed in Gloam were true, then what Bardia had said stood. If the fox's philosophy were true, then the fox said what the fox said still said stood. But I could not find out whether the doctrines of Gloam or the wisdom of grace were right. I was the child of Gloam and the pupil of the fox. I saw that for years my life had been lived in two halves, never fitted together. I must give up then trying to judge between Bardia and my master. And as soon as I said that, I saw and wondered I had not seen it before, that it made no difference, for there was one point on which both agreed. Both thought that some evil or shameful thing had taken Psyche for its own. Murdering thief or spectral shadow brute, did it matter much which? The one thing neither of them believed was that anything good or fair came to her in the night. <clears throat> no one but myself had dallied with that thought even for a moment. Why should they? Only my desperate wish could have made it seem possible. The, only, the thing that came in darkness and forbade itself to be seen. What lover would shun his bride's eyes unless he had some terrible reason for it? Even I had thought the opposite only for an instant while I looked at that likeness of a house across the river. It shall not have her, I said. She shall not lie in the, those detestable embraces. Tonight must be the last night of that. 
Suddenly there rose up before me the memory of Psyche in the mountain valley, bright face, brimming over with joy. My terrible temptation came back to leave her to that fool-happy dream, whatever came of it, to spare her, not to bring her down from it into misery. Must I be to her an avenging fury, not a gentle mother? And part of my mind now was saying, do not meddle. Anything might be true. You are among marvels that you do not understand. Carefully, carefully. Who knows what ruin you might pull down on her head and yours. But the other part of me answered that I was indeed her mother, and her father too, all that she had of either, that my love must be grave and provident, not slipshod and indulgent, there that there is a time for love to be stern. After all, what was she but a child? If the present case were beyond my understanding, how much more must it be beyond hers? Children must obey. It had hurt me long ago when I made the barber pull out the thorn. Had I not done, had I not nonetheless done well? I hardened my resolution. I knew now what, which of two things I must do, and no later than on the day which would soon be breaking, provided only that Bardia were not going on the lion hunt and that I could get him clear of that wife of his. As a man, even in great pain or sorrow, still can still be fretted by a fly that buzzes in his face, I was fretted by the thought of this wife, this petted thing, suddenly starting up to delay or to hinder. I lay down on my bed to wait for morning, calmed and quiet in a way now that I knew what I would do. The end. Okay. Mostly human relationships rather than uh, rather than strange events. It's it's not the story. They're talking. They're, they're talking of to each other, Psyche and Orwell. A uh, few points of fact. Uh, a uh, he mens mentions uh, um, something as amorous as Alcibiades. Alcibiades is a famous Greek soldier in the Peloponnesian Wars who was a wild liver. We'll just say that. He was a party, he was man. A party man. And uh, he shows up in Plato. He shows up in Thucydides. Uh, had a reputation for uh, the ladies and such. Um, the, uh, what else? A furley. She mentions furley a few times. A furley is a sudden, unexpected, dreadful, frightful, terrible, marvel, and wonder. So that's what a furley is. F-E-R-L-Y. Um, and when she says the phrase, you know, while men are beard to beard, that's sort of a quote from Shakespeare. It's probably just a saying, but it comes out of Macbeth. Um, um, and uh, let's see what else is here. There was also, uh, a, you probably caught this, uh, flooding, fluttering to and fro between two opinions. It's First uh, Kings 18.21. Um, how long will you go limping between two opinions? Uh, I think Elijah says to the priests of Baal. Um, so he picks up that phrasing. Uh, when was, who was fluttering? Uh, Orwell was fluttering between two opinions. 
So that was near the end. Yeah. No, it was it was earlier. Um, one twenty six. Um, she's still talking to Psyche, um, and she is, uh, trying to decide whether she's mad, um, all those wilder misgivings, all the fluttering to and fro between two opinions was, for that time, quite over. That's what, oh, I see when that. the rain yeah. started to fall and she saw Psyche getting wet and claiming there was a roof over her. Okay. So it was just too much um, empirical she evidence. She wasn't that, fluttering anymore. That if you're right. Essentially, whatever stuff. Okay. But, uh, okay. So, what else... Uh, An architrave is a, a beam uh, in a house or a building. Uh, okay, what uh, what did you notice going by that seems to be the deepening of the plot or the deepening of the crisis that Orwell her complaint against the gods? What's wrong with Orwell? She's pretty honest about what happened. It seems pretty evident to us reading it, maybe because we're not like Greeks, that she's being pulled the wrong direction in the riddle. Even though she had a vision of the palace. Okay? She's still pulled in the wrong direction. And she ends up deciding her riddle is now between two wrong explanations. Bardia's, which it's a monster, uh, the foxes, it's a brigand, that something bad, and it's like a false dichotomy, it's not, she sets that up, but she walked away from clear evidence she had been given in the middle of the night that the palace that Psyche had mentioned was there. Now, she starts to explain that, well, maybe I was sleepy, maybe I was weary, maybe it's the things I've been thought about. She turned that into a problem, but she went one way, and uh, <coughs> what do you think's going on in her um, that, I mean, you, you catch things in her speech that are driving it that way. Driving her away from, from even considering that it really is there. She puts it forward, but she doesn't. Uh, she goes back the other way. She goes materialist, uh, semi-material. She goes, it can't be that that there is a good God who has made her his wife, and she's happy in her palace. She has those great moments when she says, "I shouldn't mess with this." Two of those, I think. Um, the really the the cry not of not meddle. being a busybody, don't be a mischief maker. She says, "Do not meddle." Yeah, that was right toward the end. What's her what's what's going on? What's her crime developing to look like to you? 
Well, it doesn't serve her selfish desires to have her for for psyche. For psyche. Well, she even says that about the nature of love that some people don't love adequately because they're all about the beloved. Yeah. You know, wow. You know, <laughs> it's like turning the turning it into a, a virtue. What you are in the situation. Uh, and she keeps harking back to her um, having raised her. I was mother. I was father. Um, uh, I was everything she Children had. Must, o- must obey. Yeah. Uh, there was a a, a, a very um, there was a. There was a, a remark that doesn't get explained. So she goes, leave Psyche, and she's spending the night. Besides these, she's trying to sleep. Besides these, fast and whirling thoughts, wakeful as a madman's, about Psyche and my hard riddle, and also of another thing. Bardia. Yeah. She's lying under a blanket Cloak with next a, to a man a manly man a man and a soldier is a wonderful thing which was said yeah. on the previous yeah a man and a soldier is a wonderful creature now and that's what you you get you get more you don't get that ever addressed directly that that other thing uh but her reaction to the comments about bardia bardia she protects bardia but then she accepts all the comments about Bardia's wife. Yeah, now she's jealous of Bardia's wife. Yeah, and at, at the very end, that's what she's thinking about. Because um, uh, I fretted by, I was fretted by the thought of this wife, this petted thing, suddenly starting up to delay or to hinder. Yeah. Now she's also a girl that you seem know, reasonably at peace with being ugly. And not having any hope of marriage, but psyche was all of her energy in relationship, and there's a Sappho-like uh, loneliness, jealousy of her having sex with the god. When she says you liked it, mm-hmm. you know, that just disgusts um, uh, Orwell, and then she starts comparing her in her mind to the the temple girls. Uh, and the the smell of sex and the darkness and the grotesqueness of it, uh, that is the way she's viewing another. She views Psyche's relationship with the god and Barty's relationship with his wife as all real negatives because love is not coming to her in the way she wants and including the erotic aspect. She's not she doesn't know that that's creeping in on her. Hmm. It could be something else. It doesn't actually say also of another thing. That was uh, my first thought, too. Mm-hmm. Well, as long as it's our first thought. Yes. <laughs> um, it seemed like Psyche, I, I couldn't tell what, was, what she was trying to get at, but I wondered if she was trying to let Orwell know that if she would change her attitude, she could see these things and that there might be a 
a relationship like that. Well, I don't think she ever suggested. She said that he can do it. I'll ask him to do it. You ask the God to do it. Mm -hmm. She doesn't ever suggest that Orwell has a choice she could make or a thing she could do to see it. Um, it was up to it, the God whether she could see it or not. Yeah, why, and basically, I mean, I had years of, you know, some time ago I had, a, I had various conversations with people that were struggling with belief and I wonder why God does not make it obvious and clear. Why do the gods have to be so, you know, off the beaten path, not writing it in the sky for you? And what I've told people is he doesn't want you to know. Because you're the kind of person, sort of like Orwell, you're the kind of person that does not have a heart for seeking it. And you see, in both cases, you have the example of Psyche realizing, chained to the tree, that everything she had hoped for in the amber golden palace on the top of the mountain with a great king as a husband, it vaporizes and she didn't believe it anymore. But then there was something deeper way below that, but below fears and tears, it said, where the real thing that was only caricatured by a golden palace was there, you know. And for, for, um, for Psyche, the glimpse, the hope, the dream, the wishful thinking, although evaporating like it wasn't the thing she was after, her heart was leaning into it, toward it, seeking it. It wasn't like, I'm looking for any excuse to just fall back on myself and me. Mm -hmm. I'm looking still for that thing that is this way in some deeper way. Lewis talks about this and is surprised by Joy, about how he had been seeking that sublime send such moment, and he kept trying to create it, kept trying to create it, finally realized it was not it. It was something else that was far more it than the thing he pictured could possibly be. So he's he, he does it in Pilgrim's Regress too. John and the vision of the island. It's all something that isn't the case. But because he was seeking the island, he found what the island only represented. Orwell is not seeking the palace, not seeking what Psyche was seeking, she finds it to be an offense to her. And so she, when given the glimpse of the real, falls back uh, away from it rather than toward it. Did you notice uh, face stuff with books? Do we have faces? First calls her bright face. Then it talks about her story about how her face um, became the, the painting of her face and the inability for her to feel or think or express herself in any way. And then there was the priest, whenever he put the mask on, did he become a god? You know, mm -hmm. all these things are um, uh, face references um, that are just follow us through. I mean, you can't avoid it. Uh, it's, your your heroine is an ugly woman, and it's about her face. Um, 
there was there was a whole bit on um, psyche feeling ashamed. Oh yeah. Um, for being mortal. For being mortal. <laughs> and Oral will think so of her face. I mean, it's something you can't help. It's something you can't change. And yet, the shame is still there. And what, 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 do you, what do you make of that, que- that question? Being ashamed of that which you didn't do. That, just what you are. Um, it's sort of like... Uh, when it says to, uh, um, when, when it says in the Bible, but they were naked and not ashamed, you know, and then as soon as they eat the fruit of the tree, they, you know, they were naked and they're ashamed, you know. Uh, um, I think, I mean, the, that was only drawing us to, I think, another aspect of a degree. So, Psyche is encountering the gods, and she feels it when she encounters the West Wind, in particular. And that's just something where you're, you're probably looking around and going, I am really unequipped to be standing before this entity that is so much higher, so much greater. Um, it's hard to describe when we don't have a good sense of degree, because everybody we meet in regular life seems like, eh, you're basically on the same level that I am. We're all tax-paying Americans. We don't even like, um, yeah, we, we, we all get to be equal. We like that because we don't ever have to be in the company of something that's higher than we are. Is it an appropriate humility, too? Yeah, the right. That you're in the presence of something greater? Yeah, it's appropriate humility. The question is whether humility would be shameful. I think it's the realization... Mm-hmm of how ill-equipped you are in the situation. Um, I mean, it's... But you have to, like, under, explain the shame, the embarrassment. Some people get all proud about their status as a, as a low person or, or as a mortal, um, saying, oh, what the, the gods have isn't that great, and uh, what the real fun is is being me at my level... That's the true way, and, and that's the way the fox almost thinks. Um, and um, that he's they, they, they poo poo the it, smarter than the gods, and they poo poo anything that aspires to something greater and more excellent. Um, so we don't, we don't adequately. I still don't understand the shame. I think. Um, well, the leper but, illustration is helpful. They're so you, it's so unhealthy compared yeah, to a you're, god. You're dying. Yeah, they're they're futile. Um, I liked how Oral uh, sort of boiled it down to. So you're saying that they're that much redder than? Yeah, because the red ruddy was the word used, uh, which means redder red. Oh yeah, sorry, um, I heard red. But no, she said it's as she says say red, because Psyche described them as ruddier. Okay, um, and but she boiled it down to sort of a, like, yeah, that's all. That's yeah. All. <laughs> but she doesn't like, doesn't like the idea of, Sorry. what did she, 
she doesn't like it was a phrase. If true, I've been wrong my whole life. You know, this is this is almost too much to abide. Everything that I you notice that when it went by that that there was a few little subtle negative nasty comments um um she definitely got too rude to she she says when she's helping her across the stream how strong she grows she'll be a stronger woman than ever I was she'll have that as well as her beauty just a oh she comments on Psyche's strength, a greater strength than she has a few times and those are things that are, or, or when there was a uh, um, uh, you were always one for plans, and rightly too Maya, with such a foolish child as me to bring up, and well you did it, with one light kiss she put all those days all my life that I cared for behind us and began her story. It was, it was wave a, a good job with, what I am. Yeah, wave that, waved me aside even though it was complimentary you raised a poor dumb girl like me, did a great job and then she's feeling it as being waved aside. Just, uh, let's not think about your place in my life yeah. and that's obviously felt because it comes out on the page without her examining that. Well, she obviously feels like she <laughs> owes her something for her good upbringing. Right. Love right. Or loyalty, or... Mm-hmm. but it's almost as if she she only feels it because um, I don't know because it's brought to mind in a way like Psyche brought it up. She probably wouldn't have felt so... It's, she is a very melancholic person. People who are melancholical sometimes feel worse about themselves as people compliment them because then they start thinking about how that's really not the case or how that's not really that's what they need. I wasn't seeing it just in this scene, though, it, but it's a theme Oh yeah. of Orwell's that the yeah. psyche owes her something. For yes, them. that's true. Well, yeah. I thought it was interesting, the line... Um, something about often we are ashamed of what we cannot change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought that line was interesting. Oh, yeah. Doesn't she say at that time, and I thought of my face? Uh, mm-hmm. Shamed of, yeah, shamed of things that we couldn't change. Mm-hmm. And she thought of her ugliness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Lewis isn't trying to connect that uh, shamedness with her selfishness, really. Or with impiety. Because when she's most um, when she's, um, whenever she's talking about the guy negatively, it's always from a, um, a position of pride mm-hmm. or moral superiority. To the gods, it yeah. doesn't go hand in hand with the... Yeah, she doesn't have the kind of... I think she does not notice this at all. She could barely comprehend what Psyche describes to her. Mm-hmm. And Psyche knows because Psyche has encountered the gods. And she knows how she felt as an innocent person in their presence without being at that level. And Orwell's, her pride's in a different category. Yeah, it's it's not about Orwell, I think. it's, And I don't think she understands this uh, shame aspect. Um, you, do you find it a little hard to read sometimes? 
Because, um, it's, you're just, uh, forced to engage with this sort of personality. Yeah. It's just, it's kind of awful, you know. Uh, the, yeah, you, but you do know, it, hopefully none of us are entirely like the Fox or Orwell or Barty or whoever, or the King, if you're really awful. Um. But we do recognize, we recognize the temptations in part about, I think this is why he's able to speak, Lewis is able to speak about them, because he knows these are common threads. Uh, when he wrote about this book, I didn't read you the section of that letter uh, to Clyde Kilby about how it's not an allegory. At the end of it, he has a like a paragraph and some about what, happens here is like what happens to a family when someone becomes a Christian in it. That's not a Christian family. And the feeling of disloyalty and the feeling of you owe us and how can you go after this new thing and people being all virtuous about their mean-spiritedness about their improved life that they could just let it go. Just Why can't they just let it go? Um, so, um, it's a... Uh, I think it's something... He's thinking about about the way people function. He also covers that same emotion in Screw Tape. Uh, one of the temptations is what it does to the family of the person who's going on with Christ, um, and how those temptations run. Uh, how about uh, uh, Psyche's comments about my God, my lover, my husband, the my master wife. of my house? Or, you're not in charge of me anymore because I have another Lord. You know, it's my husband that I must obey. And so, Lewis does go down in history as a misogynist, but <laughs> it sounds refreshing to me as a dude. Yeah. But. It's like, man, she's really got it right, which is amazing because it's like, where did, you know, where did she learn that from? What do you think? Is there something simple? Uh, what do you think of... Uh, Close on hand, or like a page apart, a man and a soldier is a wonderful creature. Mm -hmm. And then she says a paragraph later, a young girl is the same thing as a fool. Mm. You know? Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I don't have a real picture of how old they are. I, I imagine that Psyche is just into her, you might say, adult breeding capability. You would, um, uh, they would have married people off 16. sooner. Maybe 16. Because she still wants to call her a child at the and end. And she's still a young girl. Orwell still considers herself a young girl. And she's, you know... Probably ten years older. Maybe eight to ten, something like that. Uh, so, um... It seems to me that... Um, oh, looks like he could be as young as 13 or 14. Mm. You think that young? I think so. She's so, you know, the whole tall strength, uh, maturity of, it, it doesn't, doesn't make it sound like her maturity of manner and capability is childlike in any way. No. You know, she's, she has that, when she first gets worshipped by that woman in the lane, she sounds a little young. And, oh, yeah, people do that all the time. And would Orwell consider herself a girl because she was... A virgin? Yeah, and an unmarried, I mean, living in her father's house. She would still have, like, she wasn't mistress of her own house in any way. 
Yeah. She was still. Um, but the insult of a young girl is is a fool. What was that page? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I was still a girl. Which, in many matters, is the same as a fool, and it seems to me shameful that all my sides. He didn't say young girl. I was still a girl, but it says still, which says not still, add distinction to a man. I was still a girl, not a woman. But it may be breeding, might be sexuality. Hadn't so she was still a virgin, but. Uh, okay. Well, it was just a slight, a slight interesting thing. Um, 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 I thought of a comparison with Lucy in *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, when Lucy is doubted. Mm-hmm. You know that whole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, the siblings are all sort of challenging the view that Lucy is claiming she's the one seeing things or making stuff up in her mind mm-hmm. and and I remember the professor asking them does Lucy ever lie to you you know does she ever uh-huh. and how about Edmund how's he what does he come across well he's a bastard <laughs> well let's believe the bastard rather than uh, um Oh, Hellebore, Hellebore is Christmas Rose, um, an insanity drug and poison. Uh, I don't know how they use it, if anyone uses it these days. Um, we have those plants that are Helleborus. I don't know if it's the same what, thing. With the red berries? No, ours, that's they have ju- these like dark, the dark black flowers. Uh, that hicks you. Um, it, it's, it ends in U.S. Helleborus. Um, I'll look it up and see if there's a difference. Something Grant Gunn said earlier about what the fox does in leveling everything out. And you notice how he, instead of meeting the gods, he just puts God in every one of us. Yeah. We're all the, it's all us. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and a very, and a very impassable necessary aspect to it when he talks yeah, about uh, things being able to itch or tippling in the wine the, the nature of things tippling in the wine cellar and to him the purity of philosophy has to have a purely philosophical construct for the gods it is it is unseemly to think of the gods as even someone you know mm-hmm. let alone and I think a lot of Christian theology goes that direction too. It has to be raw definitional purity, um, and you could never, if you ever suggested, and, rational. and well, rational. Uh, uh, I don't, don't know if rationality would would hurt the the the, the beingness of it, yeah. but we want it to be coldly rational, uh, uh, kind of like a like a computer generated equation solver, you know, mm-hmm. rather than uh, someone who sits on a mountain. I find people interesting who 
think they can wrap their head around God and that God is something that we can know everything about instead of that there's just mysteries that yeah, what, but what do you? I think everybody realizes that. But what? Which direction in the riddle of mystery yeah. do we go? Is it the incomprehensible equation, like too much physics, that when we get to a certain point, oh, this is just too, too much for even our math to work out? Those are people who have that clarity thing going on. And if it's too black, dark, and thick, uh, a different kind of greatness in the gods and um, we can see where we get our you know, our modern theology to have all clarity and no thick uh, and why Lewis wants to he makes you favor both I like the way he, this thing he had the false dichotomy between Bardia and the Fox's explanation one was thick one was clear mm-hmm. that's not really your choices but it it puts you in the f- you want Orwell to succeed, you like the fox, you like Bardia. Um, uh, Oh, there was that bit where um, oh, yeah. Orwell says, I don't hear of anybody ever doing this before, but I just prayed to the gods (laughs) all by myself. On the floor, no oh, sacrifice, yeah. uh-huh. just like I could do it, you know. Is that supposed to be humorous, or? It, it, I think it's it's not comic quite, but it, but it is, you know, when we assume that, that we could be praying and as I'm walking down the aisle, it wouldn't go, you know. I could be, you know, at least she was prostrating herself. It doesn't have to have mm-hmm. temple or yeah. No. Which it seems like it's an advancement for her, but it goes wrong for her. She tries to negotiate a settlement with the gods. Okay, all right, I'm sorry I said everything I said. Mm-hmm. I'm, I would take it, take it all back, uh, promise you anything. You just have to give me a sign. You have to give me a sign. And the fact that they had given her a sign and she didn't buy it, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like, hello. It's like, yeah. it's like the... Can you tell us I think it's probably... What was the sign they gave her? That she saw the palace. The vision. Oh, okay. Yeah. Something about... It's an ungodly people that ask for a sign? Yeah. Um, or it, that's not the right well, The Greeks and the Jews. The Greeks yeah, seek Greeks wisdom seek, and the Jews yeah. seek signs. Yeah. No sign will give them to the sign of Jonah. Uh, 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 something a wicked generation seeks yes. for a sign. Mm-hmm. It's like right uh, before that. And... Uh, yeah. um, but you get that idea that signs are people's laziness about their own will going a direction. They have not evaluated themselves and the gods as something that they are going to go find the gods. They're going to go worship the gods. They're going to accept the gods. They are saying, okay, make that decision easy for me. You know, write it in the stars, mm-hmm. show me a miracle, uh, raise the dead, do something uh, like a trained monkey. And if the trained monkey impresses us, um, uh, we'll go along with it, you know, because uh, we have to be overwhelmingly convinced. And when those miracles happened, some cases, like like they always like that one in Luke, I think it is, uh, where God speaks from heaven and says, this is my son, 
my beloved son listened to him, and some of the Jews said it had thundered, yeah. and some said an angel had spoken. But they got it varying degrees of wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, they heard this thing, it said that thing, someone wrote it down, and they're still um, in the dark about it. Uh, Wasn't it with Daniel, I think, or one of the appearances of Gabriel or something? And the other people around didn't know what was going on, but they were scared, you know, scared the mm -hmm. group out of them. And, they soon went away, but they didn't have the same um, reaction. Well, yeah. they didn't have the same scene of what that was, but they just knew it was bad, you know, so they got out of the way. Yeah. Okay. One thing that struck me was that when um, Oral and Psyche were in the valley and she was getting her water and everything, it reminded me of the dwarfs. In the, uh, the last battle? In the shed, yeah. Yeah. It's just about how nice. Yeah. Oh, one of my favorites. The dwarves are for the dwarves. Yep. And they're sitting there in the midst of paradise. and They aren't going to be taken in by anybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. I know some dwarves. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, that, whole, that whole conversation about the castle between them was like a distillation of a bunch of Lewis ideas mm -hmm. yep. crammed into yeah. like one conversation like yeah the dwarves and, the, and then the, and the, I also thought of like the England at the end of the uh, uh, you know last battle they see that and those superlatives and the mm -hmm. descriptions of uh, And the whole idea of the the the, the longing, there's that I think it's really great in this section. Psyche's longing evaporates into unbelief, but it has left this residue of readiness to see the real thing, you know. Uh, whereas Orwell had no longing other than for her immediate reassurance from people she cared for, you know. Um, uh, so she wasn't looking into the next. It always insulted her that Psyche was looking into the next. Um. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, I suppose I'll turn this off. Goodbye. <laughs>